Hey guys, it's Kayla. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? To show our gratitude and also because we were so excited to share this episode with you, we're coming at you a week early, so we hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Max. And I'm Kayla. And this is Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? A podcast where we analyze Broadway flops and underrated plays and musicals that we believe deserve a better chance. Yeah, we do all that and more. Today in our second episode, we'll be looking at Tarzan the musical, which, okay, hold your horses, Broadway stands, broadwayworld.com message boards saying this isn't a flop. We said flop and underrated musicals, etc. And you know what? In Disney standards, Tarzan was a flop. And we'll get to that. But before anything, we're just going to give a quick synopsis of what the heck we're talking about before we dive in. So the synopsis is courtesy of Stage Agent. On the shores of West Africa, a baby boy is orphaned when his shipwrecked parents become the victims of a fierce leopard. He's taken in and raised by a family of gorillas who have recently lost their own baby to the same predator. They name him Tarzan, and he grows up as one of the pack. However, his foster father, Kerchuk, remains wary of having a human in the jungle. When an expedition of human explorers and naturalists enter the jungle, Tarzan encounters creatures like himself for the first time. As he learns about human life and grows increasingly enamored of Jane, a young naturalist, Tarzan begins to realize that they are not so different. However, Tarzan and Jane's relationship threatens the safety of the gorillas, and the couple must decide where they truly belong. The character of Tarzan first appeared in the 1914 book Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This book later inspired 26 novels and a literary universe of 41 books. It also inspired a lot of why God whys from Max and myself. True. The musical that we are talking about today is based off the 1999 Disney film. The musical has songs written by Phil Collins, who is the composer and lyricist, and book by the literal David Henry Huang. Uh, yeah, I wrote in the notes, book by literally David Henry Huang, because it shook me when I first read that. If you're a theater nerd, which let's be real, if you're listening to us for an hour, you are, you'll probably be familiar with his body of work. If not, start with M. Butterfly and never stop. You could stop at Tarzan. It's not much of him. <laughs> The original musical of Tarzan was conceived to be performed in the round, touring the country in a gigantic circus-like tent. It was not originally envisioned for Broadway. These ideas were somehow too big and too expensive for Disney. And if it's too expensive for Disney, who's it for? The first workshop started in 2004, starring Matthew Morrison as Tarzan. <laughs> Oops. Adam Pascal as the storyteller and Laura Bell Bundy as Jane. The storyteller part was later cut from the Broadway production. The Broadway cast featured Josh Sticklin from Rent and American Idol fame as Tarzan, Jen Gambates as Jane, and Chester Gregory as Turk. The general feeling was that there was not enough rehearsal time for this show. This was actually Disney's only theatrical show without an out-of-town tryout. They really thought they had a banger on their hands. Previews began on March 24th of 2006. This was actually a very unique show because its preview process only had four shows a week. This was to make up for the fact they didn't have enough rehearsal time, so they used the rest of the time to rehearse. And the opening reviews were stellar. Critics raved about Tarzan. Nah, it's on this show, so it couldn't have done that great. The New York Times called it, and I quote, a giant writhing green blob with music. New York Magazine said, until Tarzan, I'd never seen a show begin with such flair only to dribble its ingenuity away. Yeah, they kind of showed their whole hand of tricks in the opening number and then it somehow went downhill from there. They officially opened on May 10th, 2006 and announced closing on June 3rd, 2007 which was only 14 months of a run, which in comparison to hits like, you know, The Lion King, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Mary Poppins, that's a Disney flop. It closed July 8th, 2007 due to poor sales. Uh, but it had incredible success overseas. There was a production in the Netherlands and then the place where it really found its home was in Germany, where they built a theater for it. Essentially, they did a massive renovation for the show. It ran over a collective of 10 years across three different cities. Fun fact about the Dutch and German versions of this show, the leads were both cast via reality TV show. What a choice. Also, David Henry Huang did work on revamping the script for these productions with, I assume, a German translator, but he was up there. Love that for him. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So that's how we've arrived at this spot. If you aren't super familiar with the musical Tarzan, now would be a great time to pause, go dive into the cast album, watch a bootleg, a slime tutorial, if you will. And we're going to dive right in to our reimagining. <laughs> All right. So for today's podcast, we're excited to welcome Jessica Barkle. Jessica is a founding member of Instrage Company and is currently the Associate Professor of Theater and Speech Slash Theater Program at SUNY Sullivan. She is also a freelance actor, director, dramaturg, and designer. She has directed 54 theater productions in her career with a balance of musicals, contemporary works, new works, and classical offerings. As a writer, her plays Shakespeare in Isolation, The Oristia Live, Route 666, her adaption of Tasako's Africa, and The Violins Stop Playing, The Waitress and the Nail Technician Should Be Friends, The Woman, the woman in 10A, Shakespeare's Bitches and Hoes, and Heart of All have been performed in theaters in Seattle, Albuquerque, Sarah Lawrence College, and New York City. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So we're doing Tarzan, which was one that you uh, wanted to do. And I just want to say, I am very excited to do this because I actually was did Tarzan with you many yes, years you ago did. now, seven years ago or more. I would pay good money to see that. I was Kerchak. He was. So um, we are going to absolutely rip this play to shreds, Jessica. So I hope you're not too bonded to it. <laughs> I've never bonded um, to anything. Okay. I'd say let's start with the foundation of the play. To start with the very foundation, you have to think about whether or not you want this to be Disney's Tarzan or the Tarzan from the original novel, because that can change one very drastic thing, which is the adoptive parents of Tarzan. Are they gorillas or are they this fictional ape creature that Edgar Rice Burroughs invented for this story? And that actually changes a lot of the way that the story is told, because if, this, if it's this ape, these apes were bipedal and they had a lot of human type interactions and they also spoke a language. Whereas the gorillas, that's a whole different world that Disney created. So we have to know that this is a Disney show. So in my opinion, I'm gonna keep the gorillas and not go with the bipedal apes. I'm partial to apes. I prefer oh. their movement. <laughs> it also plays into the like scientific discovery thing. If it's a different species of ape, than they're used to seeing. But I think everything else about the Burroughs original novel should be destroyed because garbage. <laughs> Jessica, Jessica, you're the tiebreaker you here. <laughs> I think it is the leap of faith is more believable if they are apes. And yet you need to use the gorilla research to create character and design, etc. Because, you know, we don't really know who Burroughs' apes are. But, you know, I saw all those movies, the Greystoke, et cetera. Those came out in the 80s. So those are de definitely like very formative in my mind as a young person, having seen those movies. Um, they're absurd to watch now. But when I was little, they were magical, like the, the live action version. <laughs> and now I rewatched it before I directed Tarzan. And I was like, oh, they look so fake in my brain. They were so much cooler. Honestly, when I made it, and I would still make it this way, it's kind of like Stranger Things, you know, this idea that my particular childhood is very nostalgic for a good portion of society. And my husband loved this cartoon. Uh, and he hates musicals. I just want to be straight up. He straight up hates them. But he does love Tarzan, the cartoon. And uh, I, I was not a fan of it. Um, so I just took a sharper look at it i did love the creepy scary Greystoke when i was a kid so i kind of fused that together and created sort of a nostalgia for disney and a nostalgia for that Greystoke. i wanted things to look a little scary and a little problematic they are and yet it's still a disney movie that's put onto a stage so there's got to be a little bit of fun there and a balance if you can make it that way if you have enough money like i love the idea that we can talk about this like if you have enough money and so when we get to my concept you know oh yeah we have all the money we're very wealthy you know max's set designs are just going to be so extravagant and impossible so you you mentioned that your husband does not like musicals and he liked the movie and that's because it was not a musical <laughs> if you want a really good dissection of that sideways does a great one we watched it in research for this also we just love him but i feel like one thing that 
exists in the movie that carried kind of in a problematic way into the musical is that disembodied voice thing. So even at the very beginning, it's the two worlds, one family opening number that we'll get to is sung mostly by Tarzan. The adult Tarzan's not going to come on stage for like another hour and you don't see him and he's not around. And it's like, wow, you did not learn, did you? Yeah. The music in this is, is very problematic because it was designed in the movie to create an atmosphere and you can't just take atmospheric cinematic music and plop it into a musical and it can't it doesn't work like that you're speaking purely on linear and we're working for the mouse and you want things to work correctly then yeah that music as an atmospheric element cannot work we've talked about like the the big foundation now let's just move into the the musical as a musical my very first thing is that i want to take every single song in this musical and strip all the lyrics out Almost every single song. Honestly, there are a few songs that we can keep, but almost all of them I want to strip the lyrics out and hire an actual lyricist. Because Phil Collins created great music in this. In fact, there was an excellent quote from the All Music publisher, the uh, the reviewer William Rallman. Uh, he said that Collins' words are just as bad as the music is good. And that's an excellent example of how I feel about the lyrics in this show. Uh, so that's my first thing is I'm just going to cut all the lyrics and <laughs> hire a real lyricist. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a bold move and I'm not against it. <laughs> it's, it's better than people think. And even I thought, because I didn't like it at first. Through listening to it, I was like, oh, wow, this music is way better than I thought it was. And um, for me, it's it's the drums. And honestly, when you have the score, they have a percussion score, they've got a drum and two separate drum scores. So they have three sets of percussion that you need to have. Which is huge for a musical. Like, typically, there's one or two percussionists in the entire show. And that's who he was first. Phil Collins is and will always be one of the top 10 drummers that have ever existed. And I'm happy that his compositions focus there we're gonna hit a couple of short kind of technical things i know that max has a whole set thing but first i'm gonna talk about costumes because i like it and i'm only gonna do two little things and maybe a third thing so that we are not spending too much time on costumes because you know I, i know max is gonna spend too much time on set okay hair Looking at Tarzan being covered in dirt and wearing dreads, I'm like, okay, it's just a little bit too blackfacey for me. There's no reason why he has to have dreads. There are protective hairstyles that white people have used historically. I think he would look really good in like a Celtic braid situation. I think that would be really cute. And then Jane, which who I'm going to talk about a lot later when we talk more about characterization. I want her to wear some goddamn pants. This pink poofy dress. She is in the jungle. And this show takes place in like theoretically the 1890s. Feminists started wearing pants in the 1850s and I've decided Jane's a feminist. So she's allowed to wear some freaking pants. Okay, I don't even have a fix for this, but can we talk about what the gorillas are wearing? Like the weird fur pants and like the fur crop top thing on Kala. Like why? How do we fix this? Um, My feeling is I want to put motion capture suits on everyone. And um, this goes into my- I'm obsessed. In, in general for this show. Why don't we take some of the skill sets that we've just learned and we've all been watching for the past year and put this onto Broadway. And you know what? Honestly, Cirque's been doing it for years. So let's go ahead and get a panoramic LED video wall, you know, like the Mandalorian. And we can play with that. We can ask audience members if they would like to purchase a VR, you know, headset and they can view the show that way. I think that if you put video capture suits on we can do a lot of stuff yeah i'm obsessed with that i love that so much well i think if we can lean into what is nostalgic about this is the cartoon so that you could watch this with live actors and you could create these video capture suits but you can also be doing you know basically chroma keying while the show is happening we know how to do it live now people have gotten very good at it you can make those all cues so people can see what's going on these video capture outfits you can make anything you want into this it would be a feast for the eyes in live performance there would be a different experience with vr on which you could watch from home or you could watch in the theater because that parallel structure creates so much inclusion and allows for different types of audiences. And also I learned this year, if it doesn't have an interactive element, then there's no point. So then you have the crew of basically the apes that don't really do much, which I had a lot of fun with. I think those were the best parts when I directed it last time. 
but that they can also be someone you purchase and you can purchase them to, you know, descend backwards on, uh, you know, Spanish webbing. Um, they can swing and go talk to another, you know, you could basically, cause I want, well, we're not on sets yet, but basically that's my costume design is video capture suits. And uh, we can go to town on animation, which I don't think we've, we've delved heavily enough into on Broadway. Warhorse did it beautifully, but I think we could go further. I really love that uh, just from a theater as accessibility standpoint, because you can run the show on Broadway and project onto their, onto their mocap costumes on Broadway. But then if people just can't go to Broadway, they can view it from home on their television or in their VR headset. Like, I really love that from an accessibility standpoint. And our modern audience is that. You know, the next generation, Gen Z, that's that's what they do. Kind of want to hate them sometimes, but we need to access them in some way. And there's got to be an interactive element. So why not Tarzan? True. Let's move into set. I'll start. And then I'm really excited to hear what Jessica has to say. I love this one theatrical space a lot, which is the SUNY Purchase Repertory Theater. A enormous black box, humongous. It's 84 feet by 84 feet, and then 30 feet from the floor to the to the pipe. So there's just a lot of stuff that you can do in there. So I'm actually gonna screen share with you guys my my set pictures. Let's see if I can get this running. And if you want to see these, subscribe to our Patreon. Give us money. So here is what you will be seeing from the very front of the thrust space because I don't believe in proscenium arch theater in any way, shape or form. I have four enormous trees as part of my space. There's one massive tree, which I figure will probably be the tree that will house a lot of the gorillas. There are two trees that are actually over the audience, that the roots are actually the structure of the audience risers. And then we have another tree over here that you can see. It's difficult to do this like building house montage that happens in the show. So what I did instead was I hid the house in the tree and then the tree during the Two Worlds song would actually do a full rotation exposing the house. The Greystoke family could then climb up into it and um, you'll notice I have this massive lagoon here, and that's because I did a bunch of research about the silverback gorillas, and it turns out a lot of them house themselves near these big lagoons. So this pool that I have here is in the, the enormous trap SUNY Purchase has, and so I'll use that trap to exchange the lagoon and the, and the camp scene during the show. That way we'll be able to have multiple multiple environments without a lot of crazy wagons. I hate wagons. And additionally, something that I found a little concerning for the way that I really like to see this show done is that apes don't swing on vines. If the vines create a sort of hammock shape, then they'll use it as a path. So even though I love the image of apes swinging on the vines, I feel like Tarzan in my production would be the only one actually swinging and the rest of the vines in the production would be used as sort of highways for the apes to go over the audience or over the theatrical space and get from one place to another. There's my set. <laughs> yeah, so I'm stealing a note from uh, Cirque. I got to witness them building an entire theater for a production for Dragon Company in Macau, China. I'm all about that now. Like if you've got money, you know, you get to build your your theater. Though, I think it would be a lot of fun to sort of steal something from the book of Peter Brook where like when he did his Hamlet, he basically would move into like like he moved into an old basketball court in Seattle. Like we got to go in there and see them taking this basketball court and redoing it. So I'm like, let's just take a big space and create our own jungle. So people can choose, much like a video game, to buy a place to sit in the map of Tarzan. So this is completely immersive. Also, everything has underneath it thousands of subwoofers to, to sort of take all of the drum work and put that underneath so that you feel the drum work. So when I went and saw Ka nice. on, in Las Vegas, you could feel all of the sound design. So I'm like, the set also needs to have subwoofers underneath the set. So for me, I do want to have the whole thing panoramic video LED screen like Mandalorian. I want it set up so we have lots of places to do aerial work or diving work. You would probably have to put on a VR 
uh, headset or have a um, virtual section if you choose to not sit in the theater proper. Like, I don't know what the theater proper exactly is, but it is, you know, sort of an arena stage. Um, but that if you wanted to sit in B with the apes, then, you know, that interactive element, immersive element would probably create an enormous amount of sightline issues for what you actually want to watch. So, there's that element as well. So if you choose to pay for the immersive seats, <laughs> that's a different experience, which also will probably have to have a, a, you know, sort of access to be able to see some of the stuff from the other parts of the map. So, but yeah, I want a map. I want a jungle. I want them to set up a jungle. My dream would be for some, like a, a zoo to shut down and we could just take over one of the ape areas. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's my set design is to steal the LED wall work. You can just have projection design up the wazoo, create whole set maps, and then have a sort of jungle gym element everywhere else. And all of the props, everything can be utilized by the apes, by the entire cast as elements of choreography, elements of usefulness, um, can be paid for by V-Bucks. You know, there's all sorts of things you could do. One of the things I really loved about doing the production with you, Jessica, was the aerial work that we did. I really feel like Broadway copped out huge in their production by doing a lot of just fly system work. It is difficult, it is hard to do, but it is not impossible to have the actors learn the physical, learn the physical skills to do the aerial work and still sing and act while doing it. Yeah, and they probably would it's, have more time than you did. I And I also, I, yeah. I know more about it now and there's so much more that we could have done. And we could have also made it very specific to animal work in general. And if anybody listening to the podcast thinks that the circus would be like impossible to do while you're singing, just look to the ensemble of any Broadway production who are dancing their hearts out and also singing at the same time. I've done it. It is no more difficult than that, I promise you. <laughs> Jessica had me chased through the air and you, I could still sing the song, so. <laughs> way more prepared physically to do that than your scene partner and she she was game she was like oh i hate him or it's on <laughs> so it's possible so i think we've covered technical stuff pretty well we can move into uh characters and characterization kayla has uh a very unique take here at the beginning which i'm very interested in okay so as you heard in the history section there was a different, a pretty major difference in cast in the original workshop of this. There was like a storyteller narrator role. And honestly, I think that the show could benefit from that role being brought back. I'm not saying it has to be an entirely new character. I wouldn't be a, a super against even like Turk possibly taking on that role and it being his perspective a little bit. But I feel like especially for a show for Disney that really does kind of require that linear once upon a time beginning middle end kind of thing this show doesn't accomplish that right now and i feel like a storyteller figure could really frame the show well and could get a lot of that kind of new narration spoken with music that we're talking about when we bring in the new lyricists in our theoretical production what do you think I love the idea of Turk being the narrator for this show because he already has a very leading player in Pippin vibe without needing to be any of that. So if you just gave Turk some lines and some maybe a song or two to maybe he could help fix the first song of the show, uh, I feel like that'd be a perfect fit for that character. For me, uh, what we did in our production that Max was in, I would like to make larger. Again, leaning into that Stranger Things, Greystoke, playing with the nostalgia of the cartoon and of the creepy movie from the 80s is the ghosts, the people who are dead. And that I loved Secret Garden. The ghosts in that are so powerful in that music box design. And I that's what I did. I took, I had the ghosts be essentially narrators on either side of the stage, but that could be done better. And I think it could be a more of a Greek chorus sort of thing that they're living in this sort of panoramic environmental theater style where the ghosts are a part of the narration and that adds that creepy element. <laughs> but yeah, one more characterization thing for me and then I will be quiet for maybe two minutes. Who knows? Surprise, Jane is boring. This is not news. This is not news to anyone. This is not surprising. Disney women, they've improved over the years, but whew, rough. So 
I feel like it would be really not that hard to shift her characterization in a really interesting way. She comes in for this opening, her first number, which again, I think needs a total revamp. But she's like, Latin name for thing. I like science. And so I feel like we could take that further. And instead of being like, oh, but now a muscle man touched me and that's the focus. She could really see him as a scientific specimen and like almost to a fault where instead of the men being like, we should do science. And she's like, no, he's a man and he has feelings. She's like, we should do science. And they're like, you're a girl, maybe. Or they just say, yes, let's do science. So I feel like we could give her much more character movement by starting her out as really seeing him as a scientific venture and then starting to develop these feelings and kind of fighting seeing him as a, as like her because to her, he's just like a subject of study. I think that could be really interesting. I hate, I did not like Jane. And I, the girl who She's played, terrible. Yeah, the girl who played her, we had a long talk about it. And I basically gave her the same concept I gave the actress when I directed Shakespeare's Tempest. Because I always think people do Miranda wrong as well. So I don't think Jane is too dissimilar from Miranda from The Tempest. Where she's got a goofball dad who's like, you know, non-parenting. <laughs> And so she's just been raised like a Hellion. And and in Tempest, she, her people are Caliban and an invisible, she doesn't know what. You know, those are her siblings. And her dad's like an absent parent. She doesn't have a parent. She doesn't have a mom. So she actually doesn't know how to wear dresses. Her dad probably didn't bring dresses with him. So she's no different than somebody who would have functioned in the multi-sensory unit at the facility I used to work at in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, so that idea that there's no holds barred about touching people, going, you know, inappropriately joining their space, um, you know, they, like the close talking, close looking. Yeah, she's as socially awkward as he is, just in a different way. Exactly. And she doesn't know how to be a woman. You know, we put a dress on her because I feel like at some point her dad was like, I think you should wear dresses. And that I wanted her to be bad at it. Like, I wanted her to be really bad at wearing dresses. Yeah, and that she was a scientist. And that, you know, I think it would be very similar now to... Going back to Stranger Things, that's like the theme of the day. But the Millie, whatever her name is, and she's in Enola Holmes. And like, and she's like so funny in that. Just like not not knowing what's right for being a woman. And I think that that is hilarious <laughs> and could have a lot more fun. And then that's how she and Tarzan fall in love because he doesn't know how to be a human either. Yeah, and I think that could be really wonderful. There is zero reason that Jane and her father and all these characters need to be British because... They're from Baltimore in the original in the original novel. And I feel Disney Clayton only made Britain. them Okay. I feel like Disney only made them all British because they wanted them to have more education or something, something the Americans apparently can't have. They just like accents. So I would definitely bring those people back to their actual roots of being American explorers because Americans did a lot of really horrible things in regard to going and taking and <laughs> Oh, God. I wonder yeah, if that's, that's what whole... it was, is they didn't want to be like, oh, Americans are coming into Africa where they don't belong and and like capturing animals and bring them back. No, they're Europeans. It's fine. We didn't do it. Yeah, I think colonialization is a little easier for Americans who like to pretend they're not imperialists to just sort of give to the traditional imperialists. Like, that's a, that's not our narrative. We didn't do that. Yeah, that's no. the tea. But yeah, on a on a dialect note, though, I honestly think that the modern ear can't really tell the difference between mid-Atlantic and British. So if we were going to have the educa that... educated elite from Baltimore, they're still going to be speaking with that educated elite mid-Atlantic dialect. And most people don't know that that's not British. They're not that smart. Kayla and I both listened to the audiobook, and it's incredible what liberties Disney took in adapting. It's incredible that anyone from Disney read this book and was like, yeah, this one, let's do this one. <laughs> At some point, it was like, when are we doing Tarzan? It was like on the list. So I want to move back into the apes and gorillas for a moment. So for movement, one of the things that drove me crazy about the Broadway production of this show is that there is no cohesive vision in the animal movement of any of the characters. The ensemble of gorillas are quadrupedal, and then the leading gorillas are all bipedal. Kerchak never once puts his hands on the ground in the show, and it just makes no sense. I'm like, are, is he a different creature than the rest of them? I need at least cohesion of 
behavior. I think it's so funny. It goes back to like early Disney of Goofy's allowed to talk as a dog and walk as a dog, but Pluto isn't. Pluto's just a dog. What's this class structure that you've set up? But yeah, I I agree. There should be some cohesivity, but that's really been Disney's MO for a really long time. This animal talks, but this animal doesn't. And this is that because this animal's stupid? Is it all just the wicked universe secretly? Yeah, exactly. (sighs) But yeah, I could not... Stand the movement, especially at the beginning. The first time we see Kala when she picks up the raggedy ass Tarzan baby doll, which is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Why not just a blanket swaddle? Come on, man. Like, why? That thing's horrifying. If you haven't seen the Tarzan baby doll, please do yourself a favor. And I don't know if it's a favor to look at it or to never look at it. Choose your pick. And she's like being very comedic in her movements. And it's almost like we're supposed to be like, yeah, look at that dumb ape. And then immediately supposed to shift over to like, oh, wow, it's a beautiful mother-son connection. And she's very intelligent and we respect her. And it's like, make up your mind. I think we should go with the latter and allow them to have some natural grace. But that's just me. Yeah, no, I really think that um, proper choreography for aerial work, proper choreography, consistent. I mean, get a Lecoq person in there and do some animal work with people. They need, they need to, and that's what we did. We did that with little kids. Like we researched them like we were at the library. We read about them. We talked about them, decided how they moved. And so we all came up with their vocabulary. And I thought our damn apes were way more consistent and they were little kids, you know, (laughs) little adorable four-year-olds, you know, stealing the show. They're like, wow, better spend all of our time learning how to walk down this wall one time for no reason very slowly instead of like, I don't know, making a cohesive movement vision. Simple conversations that never happened. I've had like simple conversations about consent and intimacy this year that were faster than I think they probably had for that particular Broadway production. There's no cohesivity. It's terrible. All right. So a couple days ago. Max Snapchatted me and we decided to not talk too much about our visions for the show because we wanted to to play around with just kind of surprising each other for the discourse. But he, he Snapchats me and is like, I have so many feelings about the yell. And so now I can finally know. Tell me your feelings about the yell. Hit me with it. There's a major problem with the yell in the Disney versions of this. Actually, first, this yell in the original novel is used only when Tarzan kills someone because that is the only time that it is socially acceptable in his world in his tribe's ecosystem to use this yell and the disney film does it all the time it's even worse than the musical the kid just screams that yell anytime and this yell in my opinion there's there's the whole structure of uh when you sing and when you dance in musicals when the emotion is too high to speak you sing when you when it's too high to sing you dance i feel like for tarzan's yell the only time he should use it is when the emotion is now too high to dance it should be only used in the absolute highest emotional points for this character in my version of the production he would probably only use it in any of the moments where he is truly defending his family or the people he loves. Yeah, and I think also in a post we see you white American theater world, that's a lot of cultural appropriation of ululations from South Africa and a variety of other things. You know, like I I put gumboot dancing into our production and that was cultural appropriation, but I kind of wanted to use that element of African dance that comes from being forced to work in mines and to do this thing. And I, I liked that. And the percussive element of Phil Collins's work that sort of came in there. But I, you know, I would be more appropriate and hire somebody who actually is a South African dancer, choreographer. There are plenty that are awesome and we can afford those in our pretend production. But yeah, I mean, you'd have to be really careful with ululations anymore. Like that is not white culture's place. It just isn't. No. Yeah. And on that note, I think that we should stop here and acknowledge that there was only one black person in like the core cast of the Tarzan musical on Broadway and he played a gorilla and that's messed up. I also think that because of the white supremacist origins of the original Tarzan book, like the amount of times it's had like strong white European man who knows he's better than the blacks, like literally that's probably a sentence word for word. Like, People can come from Europe who are not white. So I think having a non-white Tarzan might be really nice to be like, this is the highest specimen of man. Like he's in, he invented the wheel at like age nine randomly on his own. I don't 
think that there's any reason why he needs to be a white person. And there's no reason in sort of this imperialistic English history that we have to have a white Tarzan. Why are we... Or a white Jane. Or a white Jane. Why are we in Africa? Who is there? Who is, you know, it doesn't really matter. So, yeah, I think, I, I think, this is what I think for casting. I think there should be no white people in it. And I think it should all yeah. be, you know, Asian and African and multiracial. I just don't think there should be any white people in it. I think it's it's not theirs anymore. It needs to be taken back. So if we begin with our deep dive, we'll hit two worlds at the very beginning. It was pulled from the film. So it has zero emotional connection to the play and has no plot advancement at all, which are the purposes of having a song in a musical. Additionally, on the album, if, if anybody goes after this podcast and looks at the album and goes, Max is wrong. On the album, Two Worlds is only like four minutes. But when you see the full production, it's actually nine minutes and 50 seconds, which is the longest opening number I've been able to find. It's about five minutes longer than all the other Disney opening numbers. And it's three minutes longer than all the Golden Age musicals, which had epically long opening numbers. And you'd think that they'd use that extra five minutes to add, I don't know, text or dialogue. Nope. They just interpretive danced the entire exposition and depended on you knowing what happened already before you came into the theater, which is not what we're doing. It, it needs a dramatic change, in my opinion. I never liked it. I struggled with it. I had to make it a puppetry moment because I did not like it. So, but um, I'm all about solving problems with puppetry or humor if I can. So I'm okay with it going bye-bye. Great. <laughs> So we're in a consensus. The first number is gone and we're replacing it with something else. Bye-bye. <laughs> if we come to You'll Be In My Heart, as one of my friends reminded me yesterday, they were like, oh, it's so special because Phil Collins wrote it about his daughter. And I'm like, yeah, but does that correlate to anything in the show? The show isn't about Phil Collins' daughter. <laughs> you can try to make it work better for Kala singing to Tarzan, but... It needs changes. I think it can be done. I want to add like kind of a prologue to the song of her like starting kind of a lullaby kind of vibe. I think the biggest issue for me with this song isn't the song itself actually, but the scene before. There is no emotional buildup. There is no like real justification for why she is so attached to this child. There's one throwaway line by Kerchuk being like, he'll never replace our child who is dead. And so I think if there was more done in that scene with like, like this is our son, that's not our son, our son's dead and she's like no this is our son and kind of even if she's kind of in denial that he is a human child and not her actual biological child I think that would be kind of interesting if if there's kind of different realities being seen by Kerchuk and Kala and then this is her kind of withdrawing into her own reality with this baby I still agree that there needs to be some lyrical tweaks but I think that the meat of the song could be salvaged that's an interesting mental health point that you you make there. If 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 you guys haven't seen it, um, that reminds me a lot of the servant on Apple TV Plus. It's basically a, a show where the the opening premise is that this woman accidentally left her child in, in a car and he died from heat exhaustion. And then her therapist gives her this baby that look this baby doll that looks just like him, but she believes that he's still a living child. I feel like that therapist is bad. What you're saying, Kayla, though, is very interesting because it's it's sort of the same thing. Kala collects Tarzan, could collect Tarzan, and just the grief lapses over and turns Tarzan into That's her That's kind of child. what happened in the book, kind of. She, like, literally puts down her child's corpse in his crib and picks him up. Yeah, in the um the Greystoke one, they do lead up to it. It is very sad, like the way that she loses him and then discovers Tarzan. It's really beautiful, and I really wish that they could do that. And honestly, I think the song has to stay because it's the only ballad love song and it's the only love story that's even worth anything in the show because, like, the Jane Tarzan thing isn't really a love story. Oh, and honestly... For me, when I directed, it was the only thing that would get me teary was the reprise. But it was so gorgeous. This is problematic marriage because they've lost a child. This child that replaced the child that ruined the marriage that did, you know, created a schism. And then having to say goodbye to him. Oh, my God, that 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 trio, the reprise is heartbreaking. So if you don't establish it earlier as the lullaby, as the love song, the later moment that is actually the one of the only good moments in the show that's earned doesn't work and also i think that 
whatever song that we rewrite, you know, David Henry Huang, when you are actually allowed to do what you want to do, you know, then there's, you know, this, this aspect that could be what happens there after they lose their kid. Could there be a duet between the two of them? Like, oh my God, make Kerchak and Kala's story much more interesting. Good God. Oh, I have so much to say about that later. <laughs> the next song is Jungle Funk. It just seemed like the choreographer slash aerialist choreographer was like, I want to show off my skills. And so they threw in a song in there. It does nothing. It doesn't advance the plot. Cut. It has no emotional connection. It's gone. Who better, Who better than me? I think the song's a jam. Okay, so I'm going to start with the scene before again. I'm sorry. So there's like this whole scene where Turk is like explaining pendulating and like the science of swinging through trees. And I'm like, how is this helping anyone? And he's really mean to baby Tarzan the whole time. And then he starts songs like, I'm going to be your best friend. And it's like, okay, what the heck? There is no sort of transitional moment in the scene. It's just like, I hate you. I'm going to be your mentor also. I think it's kind of weird that it's adult Turk and baby Tarzan because then Tarzan ages and Turk does not age. I like the idea of them both being young men and then it really makes that scene kind of funny because Turk is like, I'm one of the alpha males. And if he was like a 10, 15 year old boy, that would be way cute and funny. So I love the idea of a young Turk actor to play opposite the young Tarzan actor and then they can grow up together. And I also think that this song should be used to shift from young Turk and young Tarzan into adult Turk and adult Tarzan. I think young Tarzan stays way too long. He's just young for so long. And he has his own I Want song that's totally unconnected to adult Tarzan's I Want song. And it's like we're facing two different characters. And so I think he needs to grow up much, much earlier in the show. Yeah, I don't, I, I've always thought the song was problematic. I also thought that the way they did Turk versus the cartoon was wrong. They need to reimagine Turk in general. It's a problematic character that doesn't work. Doesn't, it, it's really just, a, it's a problematic Disney sidekick character and they didn't even do it well in yes. the musical. So whether or not the song is a jam, I would cut it because it just doesn't, it doesn't do anything. But I do want to, in my reimagining, I, I take more time with establishing the friendship between Turk and Tarzan. And so I feel like I would not cut the song, but Turk would need to be completely redeveloped to make the song work. If we move into no other way, I want to start this just by reading off a quote. This is a, another music reviewer. The composition of No Other Way and Sure As The Sun Turns To Moon seems only second rate. Their structure is way too simple. And as somebody who played Kerchak, I can tell you the songs are boring and you have to do an incredible amount of acting to put any sort of meaning into these two songs. They really felt like Phil Collins just went home, threw some things down on paper and said, this will be good enough because it's not the main storyline. Yeah, I feel as though they were like, it was like a rough draft. They didn't go far enough because Kerchak in the film and in the book is totally unforgettable. Like there's no reason. But in the musical, I actually fell in love with Kala and Kerchak. But I also think that that was me, the director, falling in love with them. Because um, I loved the actors playing them. But that also led me to believe they put these things in there and they could have done them better. And honestly, that's that's the heartbreaking part, the inciting moment of the play. That's the heartbreaking part of the play. If I were to reimagine it dramaturgically, I would really make this more about the family that it becomes. That is Kerchak, Kala, Tarzan. Tarzan earns Kerchak's love. Like that is so much more dramatically interesting is watching Tarzan want to please Kerchak. You know, he doesn't have to please Kala. There's no arc there. <laughs> she already loves him. <laughs> She's ar she, he is already filling a void, but Kerchak has a void and he doesn't want it filled. He wants Kala and Tarzan wants Kerchak and that's way more fun to deal with. You know, the other side stories are so boring, you know, but that's actually quite good and they, they had it. They just didn't go far enough. Focus on Tarzan's daddy issues. Yes, we did. We made it that. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla, <laughs> I oh. need to know the the first I Bye. want song. Yeah, Bye. I don't need it. it. You, you don't need it. I'm just going to say this now. Strangers Like Me needs to be way earlier in the show. So I would probably put it in this vicinity. So we would add in a scene where Jane and her dad and Clayton are like doing some science or something. So the first time we see them, we don't hear her voice at all. We just see them and we see him looking down on them from one of Max's gigantic trees. And he is singing this 
observing them and he could be kind of mimicking their movements and kind of standing up straight and and i think that that could be a really really interesting way instead of just like now i'm walking with this pretty girl and this is the song that everybody knows Following the praxis of Tarzan wanting Kerchak's acceptance and his love, in addition to Kala's, um, I need to know, does, I mean, I mean, whether it we like it or not, that. it serves a point there. And um, honestly, those are one of those things, too, where, like, out of context, I hate songs, but then when you see them on a young actor and they sing them, they just break your little heart. Like It's a very sings. sweet song. So if they change the dramaturgy to be that, he's singing it to Kerchak and Kala, that that's one of those moments when Kerchak comes to visit his wife and Tarzan takes that moment to try to have an inciting moment for that Praxis to get, gain his, because it's in there. They make Kerchak die later and it's not earned. Um, so they could use that song where that little boy is actually asking Kerchak and Kala, like, I need to know. What do, what, what do I need to do? Yeah. And then it would give strangers like me kind of some because he doesn't say I want to be like these strangers like me I don't want to be with them he wants to know about them I feel like there can be with the excitement and the curiosity also a little bit of fear because Kerchak has always been afraid of who he is and so he might feel a responsibility to his family to investigate these people and make sure they're not a danger yep and I think that's in there they just again didn't go far enough they, they 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 had the scratchings of a rough draft of that, but it's not there. I bet David Henry Huang slipped slip that in there for us. I'm gonna give him credit. Me too. He's a nice man. Son of man, I'm straight up cutting. It's a holdover from the movie. They 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 only pulled most of these songs like this in because they were in the movie and people would show up to the theater and be upset if they didn't hear the songs that were in the film. Just I'm put them in it. the cast recording for people to listen to at home, have them sing it in the studio, but don't put it in the show. Yeah, a nice bonus track. I, I agree with you and I think it's forgettable, which is, I thought it was funny that I found out it was one of the popular songs from the recording and I'm like, huh, what's it doing? <laughs> okay, Son of Man reprise, obviously cut. Yeah. The only thing I have here uh, for sure as Sun Turns to Moon is see my opinions about No Other Way. You have to rewrite the whole Kerchak Kala storyline for those songs to be good at all. And see, I wrote cut the whole storyline and just <laughs> don't do it. But I have since changed my mind. Jessica has converted me and now I want I, I do want their relationship. I think it has a lot of potential. I was just fed up. <laughs> Which is understandable. If you believe that Jane and Tarzan is the, is the storyline, then it doesn't make any sense. But the good story, as Jessica said, is the Kala, Kerchak, and Tarzan story. Uh, waiting for this moment. It's like, I have Latin words for things, and I am glad to be in the jungle, and I hate it, and Jane deserves better. Give her a better song to introduce herself. Just saying a bunch of Latin words isn't a good way to be like, this is a woman of science. It should have like the curiosity and excitement of part of your world, being thrilled by all the stuff around her because it, it's so new and not just like, I've been waiting to say stuff. It just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, I, I think all of Jane needs to be rewritten and she needs to be a little more scientist-y, she can still be pretty. She can have a moment later where she like discovers him as a man and suddenly wants to try to look prettier and that would be funny. Oh my God, yeah. She could like take freaking berries and rub them on her mouth and like that would be a great comedic thing is like her trying to figure out makeup from like the jungle. That's hilarious. Well, I mean, I think it would just be a lovely song that the two of them both, when she's like trying to teach him, but he's also learning, but she's also realizing that she's showing him stuff she doesn't like. But then later when they come to the table and like, you know, the table moment where they're both there is like, but that we see them kind of transition and that she puts on a dress for the first time because she's like seeing him as a man and he's seeing her as a woman and things are happening and they don't know what they feel. I think that would be really a lot of fun. And, so and he like tries to shave earlier and then has like all these leaves all over his face from where he caught himself and then like comes like looking kind of tidy oh uh, we're making this too cute it's destroying me i'm obsessed okay <laughs> it is disney so we can go there you're right 
then we go to the end of act one song where the two actually meet for the first time it's not a good end of act one song the whole point of an end of act one song is to create an excitement and a cliffhanger to bring people back from the intermission that is definitely a major change that needs to be made is a much more interesting end of act one song yeah i think this is where that greek chorus or narrator element could really come into play with these two different existential moments of being an ape and being a human yeah so i think sort of leaving the audience with like oh no something new is happening like there's a schism like in his world literally his world is having he's being rocked his little world is like crazy and then we drop the curtain you know i love that um i i love that i also love if we want like a cute like a, we could do like end it on a meat cute so like in, at the end of whatever Jane's new song is, whatever d dangerous position she is in, not with a man-eating spider, just use something that exists. And then end the act with them like on a vine, slowly like turning and looking at each other and having that like kind of iconic imagery of each of them on the vine, like looking at each other and then curtain or blackout or rain or fire. And then there's like, oh shit, now it's going to go down. I feel like that would also be effective. I picked this up from from Jessica uh, in my sort of directorial style. For me, for Trashing the Camp, I'd actually start it in the middle of intermission. Okay, it, that's it, the only way this song makes sense to me. Exactly. I literally wrote that in my notes. Like, this song only makes sense if they're starting it while people are getting back into their seat. Yeah. I want this song to literally be a call to the audience to return to the theater. It just creates the energy of come back for this show. That's all the song really does. Uh, so that's what I would do is I'd start it in the last five to three minutes of the intermission just to bring people back to their seats. I definitely think we could steal some stuff from Julie Taymor and have people start to crawl over the audience and, you know, it's like, well, what's all this stuff? And be taking things from audience members and, you know, like the top, the end of uh, the intermission is just a really bad time for all the interactive elements. Yeah. Uh, like no man I've ever seen. It's really funny to look at our notes document because Max and I both put our notes in there. And Max's says, quote unquote, a song which actually makes sense. And mine says, an actually effective song. Wow. And we did not discuss. And we were both like, actually, this is fine. It's true. This is like a song that it seems they brought somebody in to write the lyrics for or write the music for it. It does not track any of Phil Collins' style. It's like a successful musical theater song. It advances the plot and has narrative value. What? <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun song to choreograph as well. For Jane's dad, it gets to create an actual character for him yes. instead of him just being a character on. And it also works with the new development of Jane as like a scientist. You wouldn't even have to really change that song, I don't think, at all, because it's all about like it's that curiosity that I was so desperate for in waiting for this moment. It appears here, and I'm grateful. Okay, Strangers Like Me then happens, but I have moved it. Any other people have thoughts? I mean, it's a necessary song. So, you know, however, they sort of change the praxis of what I think is the main storyline, which is Tarzan trying to accept who he is, starting with his one family and then discovering a girl, which I don't think I think that's a secondary storyline. I don't think the Jane and Tarzan is the main storyline. Um, I think that that's something that is a conflict for him and his identity. So but this is a necessary song for him to really start to really deal with that schism. Uh, for the first time, I have included a, another quote, this one from a German uh, reviewer. The reviewer says, it's a very enjoyable song, even though lyrics like, she turns my whole world upside down are not even remotely creative. And that is the problem with this song is it's a bunch of cliches. It's literally another quote, which illustrates it beautifully Collins attempting to spoon feed his listeners that is very much that song feels and a lot of the songs in but again the cliches can work if it's Jane being like this is how people describe the feelings I'm feeling so if we put more into her character development I think it could save this song I also want to put it after everything that I am because everything that I am to our new scientist less emotional Jane would be the place where she really starts seeing him as a human and as a man fully because he, he's like shared this very intimate emotional thing with her and then I think it can be her struggling with those feelings I think it would be more poignant a little bit later yeah I actually literally had the actor playing Jane like reading things from her journal <laughs> 
during it. So I think that, yeah, I, I think it was, I was trying to find band-aids for things that I didn't like. You know, I will throw humor at something if I don't like it. So I don't think that this song really works, but again, it needs to be there narratively for this new development of the, like if the first act is developing the family, his, his, his foundational family, the apes, the second act needs to see the conflicts that are coming from the outside world of who he actually is to affect that family. And so she's a necessary part of that praxis and that arc, but I don't know how much we have to establish. I feel like we can get one of those songs to do that and we don't need all of them, but I think they wanted to give the actor playing Jane more to do because I don't know. Because she didn't have a single song in the film, question mark, but it's fine. All right, and then this is the Who Better Than Me reprise, which we talked about a little bit. I want a key change. I want more feelings. If this is going to stay kind of the general plot is that Tarzan asks him to do this thing. I need a scene before where it's like, Tarzan, where have you been? Like, you've been really absent and he's kind of ignoring him and he's like okay i need you to do this for me because there's this girl and dirt to dirt you know it's that stereotypical like thanks man you're the best and he hits him and he runs off and then he's like well who better than me to do all your shit for you so that you can go run off with some girl and not care about me anymore i think it needs to be plot justified yeah, I think to jump off of your idea of Turk, because I've just never, the Turk character has always been problematic for me, but I think if we steal your idea and um, sort of maximize on this idea that when you like somebody, you go ask your bro for some, like, advice, and that, like, Kurt, you know, Turk is just going to give him some bad advice, like, you know, you smash a banana on her face. And, like, then we cut to seeing Chicks him smash dig it. that! Chicks really like it when you smash bananas on their faces. Um, so I think we could really like play with that. Like if we could get him a little bit more in there with the conversation. Like, did you see this girl? How do I get her to like? This is what I do. I I pick all of the bugs out of her hair. It's a really nice thing. Wait, to that'd do. be a cute song of him like teaching him how to pick up chicks. And yep. like he's like, you pick the termites from your fur and you feed them to them, and that'd be hilarious. That's how you get your sweetie with the sweets from her hair. <laughs> everything i am it's 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 tarzan's second i want song because apparently we've forgotten how i want song. Uh, it would be third if we'd kept i need to know or no son of a man i lied son of a man is an i want song so third what i've written here is kind of justified and it kind of helps the plot along so it's kind of close to what you need for a musical but it needs some changes so that it's not a secondary i want song or third, I want. Tertiary, I want song. I was also thinking tertiary. I mean, if they change the praxis to his struggling with identity, which I do not think is the story. I think the story is still one family and then another family. We don't need a tertiary I am song. We can have two I am songs because we're dealing with our identity between two families that we don't understand. We don't need a tertiary one. And then he decides he's going to run off with Jane and live in America or England or where the heck ever. And then You'll Be In My Heart reprise is, it's fine. It does what it yeah, needs to. Acceptable. I mean, honestly, the You'll Be In Your My Heart reprise for me is the is the climax of the show. And uh, it was the most beautiful moment in the production Max was in. Um, I think it was the one that made everybody cry. Uh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was the only time also, too, that I added, like, a purple side light. I don't know why. I just wanted to. And it looked great in a photo out of it. Uh, but Kala and Tarzan have purple. And Kerchak is that part of that. I don't know. Uh, we had we had like I had this beautiful photo of this production and like Max is totally in silhouette in the background, sitting on his Spanish webbing, watching this goodbye. Wait, you have to send it to us. I wanna see it. <laughs> I'll find it. I kind of love the concept of ending the show after you'll be my heart because I don't like the Kershaw's death is so unearned and weird. I didn't like it. And like, I think Tarzan's original choice to go, he is not an ape and that he should not be the leader of the apes. And that doesn't make sense. And that he loves his family and they've come to, and Kershaw's come to accept him. However, that journey has happened. And he does go with Jane back to his world to go learn about it. I like that. I don't think he should stay and be king of the apes. That is just more colonialism. Leave it to the apes. I would be happy if you'll be in my heart with the reprise was the end of the show. And he could like say goodbye to the apes one by one. And it'd be like very emotional getting on the boat moment. I'm kind of obsessed with my mind picture. I, I think if they redid the praxis to really focus on Kerchak, Kala and Tarzan, and then these other elements are what is the conflict for 
who he is and that ultimately he decides it is safer for his people for him to leave because they will never come back to him. And if we do keep part of No Other Way, we could even have a reference line to that leading into this You'll Be In My Heart reprise where it's like there is no other way to keep you safe but making making sure there are no humans here including myself. And that would be heartbreaking. And that would tie in Kerchuk because he'd be like, you have been right all along, honestly. Like, I never understood why you treated me like this. And I just thought it was because you hated me. But now I understand it's because you love our family and I love them too. And I want them to be safe. I love collective ending that, you, that you've that you created. It, it's really... And, you know, it was inspired, honestly, by you and Matt, you know, Max, you and Cassidy. And, um, like, it just was like... Um, but we did. I remember we had, like, a really heavy rehearsal for that reprise and talked about it a lot. And your death was a lot of that. And I remember Derek being very upset after your death. And, you know, it was just like... It was it was heavy for everybody. So if they could actually a lot of put work. that into the writing as opposed to the direction, like that, I was just trying to put band aids on things. But it shouldn't it shouldn't be that much damn work. And the music is problematic because it's so cutesy cutesy in a good portion of it that a lot of those songs mm. have to go away. I think that we've created a beautiful world together. Maybe even three worlds, one podcast. <laughs> That's a good tie-in. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your incredible and modern ideas for this show. It was really inspiring. This has been a blast. If any producers are listening and want to give Jessica a bunch of money to do cool theater, would recommend. Thank you. And no one steal my idea. I will know I will know who you are. <laughs> yeah, this is intellectual property. We have a lawyer. We don't have a lawyer. Right. Jessica, is there anything you want to plug? Um uh, I don't want to plug anything, yeah. but I'm happy to be here, and I, I'm so proud of Max. I, I have no reason to be. He's good. such a good boy. He's 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 he he follows directions. He's a good boy. <laughs> On that note, if you want to see some images in association with today's episode, you can check us out on Instagram at GetItRightPod. If you want to email us, you can email us at EverGetItRightPod at gmail.com. If you want to give us your money and in exchange get some delightful bonus content, you can find us on Patreon. And please give us a review on whatever podcast app you use. Those reviews are what tell future listeners that our podcast is a good podcast that they should listen to. Or you can just tell them yourself. Recommend us to a friend. Make them listen with you. We can all be friends. All four of us can hang out in your earphones and it'll be a great time. If, if every single one of you recommends us to another friend, we've doubled our audience. It, it's like magic. Wow, a theater major doing math. That's a note to end on. See you guys in two weeks. Bye. Tschüss.